So we're in Acts chapter 2, and in Acts chapter 2, we're talking about walking in the awe of the Lord. And awe is the gloriously overwhelming sense of the tender mercies and goodness of the Lord displayed especially in the cross of Christ. And it says this in the passage we're dealing with the next few weeks, Acts chapter 2, verse 42 and following, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So the, the, the awe permeated the church because they saw the glorious mercy found in Christ. They, they heard the message on the day of Pentecost that the Messiah, who has been long awaited for and anticipated, had come. This Messiah had been crucified by evil men, but he had risen victoriously over death. He had ascended into heaven that because of the work of this Messiah upon the cross, there is forgiveness of sins and there's the hope of heaven. And when they heard about Messiah had come, there was forgiveness, there was the hope of heaven. They were thunderstruck, they were overwhelmed, they were awed. And, and, and then there was this environment of awe where the Bible says that several things happened as they were People who walked in the glorious celebration of the gospel, number one, they were together, it says, which means they had a, a unifying principle that they lived by, which is, was the glory of the gospel. And as I thought about that, I thought, you know, that, that, that when you are consumed with the wonder and goodness and mercy and forgiveness of Christ, life takes on joy and meaning. Let me, let me just read 1 Peter chapter 4 says this, verse 7, the end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. The end of all things is at hand. Life is short. Be sober-minded. Pray. It says, above all, keep loving one another since love covers a multitude of sins. And you go, you know, love covers a multitude of sins. That is, as I understand and glory in the gospel, then things that once caused Five alarm drills in my life, once that were red issues in my life, take on a different meaning. Because love covers a multitude of sins. When we, when we have this unifying principle of the gospel, it builds community. It builds families. It builds relationships. Number two, the awe of the gospel broke the thraldom of things. Broke the craving desire for materialism. It says they sold and they gave to people who were needy, who had needs. Number three, it says that they, they received food from home to home with, with glad and generous hearts or, or glad and sincere hearts. There's there a, a permeation of, of gladness and joy and celebration. And fourthly, it says that they had favor with all types of people. The, the, the world around them saw their selflessness and their giving and their joy and their laughter and their hope. And they said, we like what we see. 
And so the Lord gave them favor with all kinds of people. And then I said last week, what feeds this awe? What feeds this awe that, that, that these people, these Jews, these are Jews who heard the, the gospel in their own language at the day of Pentecost as, as the Holy Spirit was poured upon the church. These were Jews who, who heard about Messiah and the forgiveness of sins and the resurrection of the body and the hope of heaven. These were Jews who said the Messiah has come and they probably hearkened back maybe to some words they heard that was, are recorded for us in the gospel of Matthew where Jesus looked at his men and he said, blessed are your eyes and what they see and your ears and what they hear. Because I tell you that many righteous men long to see what you see, but didn't see it. And they long to hear what you guys hear, but they didn't hear it. And they said, the hope of the ages has come upon us. His name is Jesus. And so as, as, as that happened, you know, you ask us, what feeds this awe? And the Bible says very plainly, they devoted themselves to four things, which means they gave themselves w- without any reservation. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread or worship, and to prayer. And and that's what energizes the church then and today. And so they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. I began last week. I'll finish this little part today. They, They gave themselves to the apostolic teaching, the teachings of the eyewitnesses of Christ who were directly commissioned by Christ who were workers of miracles, who wrote, and when they wrote as apostles, it was God's truth given to the church. So they gave themselves to the apostles' teaching. And, and I said last week this quote by Augustine. It's just a, a great quote. To be happy without superintendence belongs to God only. To, to be happy without superintendence belongs to God only. In other words, you can't truly be happy now and in eternity without the gospel being spoken into your life. And then this quote by C.S. Lewis, I love so much. Lewis says, mere Christianity, God made us. He invented us as a man invents an engine. A car is made to run on petrol or gasoline, and it would not run properly on anything else. Now, God designed the human machine to run on himself. He himself is the fuel our spirits were designed to burn or the fuel our spirits were designed to feed on. There is no other way. That is why. It is just no good asking God to make us happy in our own way without bothering about the Christian faith. God cannot give us a happiness and peace apart from himself because it is not there. There's no other way. This is a very simple, basic statement, very basic apologetics, but it's profound. God made me. He invented me. He is the fuel my spirit was made to run on. So to ask God to make me happy outside of his revealed mind is a fool's errand. There's, there's no other way. And so these, these Jews said, man, he's Messiah. There's forgiveness. There's the hope of heaven. There's the resurrection of the body. There's the life everlasting. Wow. And then, and then as I look at this, I think that, that all of worship is response to to cognitive understanding of what God has done for me in Christ. All of worship is is a response to understanding and grappling with truth. 
For example, let's think about Psalm 100. It says this. It's a beautiful psalm. Make a joyful noise to the Lord, all the earth. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with singing. Why? Listen. Know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who made us, and we are his. We are his people. We're the sheep of his pasture. So, so the psalmist says, make a joyful noise to the Lord. Worship him. Glory in him with joyful singing. Why? The Lord alone is God. We are his. He made us. And we are his people, the sheep of his pasture. Sheep are not always smart. They're not smart. But our shepherd is glorious and kind and eternal. And he's God. And his name is Jesus. And so I grapple with that. And as I grapple with that, I rejoice and I'm glad. And then he says this. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with with praise, be thankful to him and bless his name. Why? Next verse. The Lord is good. And he, his steadfast love endures forever. And his faithfulness to all generations. And you go, wow. So, so, so you, you step back and you go, Lord, I want to enter your, your gates with thanksgiving. I want to come into your courts with praise. I want to thank you and bless your name. Because you are good. And your steadfast love endures forever. And your faithfulness to all generations. You step back and say, you know, I'm a granddad. I'm a dad. You look at the future. You look at what's coming. And you go, you know, I have concerns about this. And I have concerns about that. And I have concerns about where the culture is going and what's happening. But, but Lord, you know something? You are going to be faithful to the generation after generation after generation after generation. And you're going to build your church. And the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And I trust you in that. Therefore, I get glad. And I sing and I celebrate. So you see, this awe, this worship is a response of cognitively Dealing with the truth of what God has done for us in Christ. And, and, and that's who we are. So I want us to think biblically. I want us to be saturated with the Bible. I want us to come before the Lord with thanksgiving and awe as we reflect upon the greatness and the glory of our Messiah. So, so next section. Why, why are we devoted to the apostles' teaching? I've gone through some issues from the pastoral epistles. Since last week, the one reason we're devoted to the apostles' teaching is that it produces a life of love. Paul says in 1 Timothy 1, he says, the goal of this command is, 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 is love, which comes from a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith. Yeah. So, so as I take in the Scripture by the power of the Spirit, it produces a life of love in me as I deal with a pure heart and a clear conscience and a sincere faith. He says, some people just wander from these things and they pierce themselves with great grief. But the, the second reason we uh, devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching from last week is that we fight the good fight of faith with the Scripture. We, we take the Scripture. And he says, Timothy, fight the good fight of faith with the prophecies made over you in chapter 1, verse 18 of 1 Timothy. So, so if, if I'm to fight the good fight of faith, I'm going to take the Bible, I'm going to think through it and read it and sing it and, and meditate on it. And I, the, the one issue I would always hold before myself and you is how did Jesus fight the devil? 
And he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. I need to fight the devil with the word of God. And so today, two more points. We give ourselves the apostles' doctrine because as we do, we discover good doctrine that leads to sound theology. Good doctrine that leads to sound theology. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 6 says this. If you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of the faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. See, the word here for good means this. It means life-giving, enhancing, beautiful, beneficial, and useful. I want that. See, so if I hold the apostles' teaching, I will develop a good doctrine that leads to sound theology. Good doctrine, again, is beautiful, handsome, beneficial, useful. And that's why he says later in that passage, because of this, for, for, for to this end we, we toil and we strive. And because we who have our hope set on the living God, so, so he says we, we toil and we strive. And so as we teach and love and nurture and parent and mentor people, we toil and we strive to get this into their lives because it's good and it's beneficial and it's useful and it's life-giving and it gives you a future and a hope. And, and, and it leads to sound theology. The word for sound means life Enhancing or health producing. For example, in Titus, it says this in Titus 2, verse 1. See, this good theology leads to sound doctrine. We love sound doctrine. He says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. We get our word hygiene from this word. It's health producing. Sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and instead fastness. Sound. So, so good theology, sound theology, health-producing, beautiful. So the first day of every month, the first day of every month, I, I, I read and think through Psalm 1. And Psalm 1 says this. Blessed is the man. Happy is the man. Joyful is the man. That's what the word blessed means. Happy is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked or doesn't stand in the way of sinners and doesn't sit in the seat of mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord and on the law he will meditate day and night. He'll be like a tree planted by streams of water which yields his fruit in season and whose leaves never wither and whatever he does prospers. Not so the wicked, those who are captivated by the spirit of the age. Not so the wicked. They're like the chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, sinners will not stand in the assembly of the righteous nor in the congregation of God's people. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the sinner will perish. I just say to myself, self, do you really believe on this first day of the month, that, that happy is the man who is not captivated by the spirit of the age. Do you really believe that if you're captivated by the reality of God and his word, you'll be like a tree 
planted by streams of water, which yields his fruit in season, whose leaf never withers, and he prospers in the Lord. I want that. Self, do you really believe that the ungodly who are captivated by the spirit of the age and who have turned their back in God's revelation are like chaff? There's no rootedness. They're blown here, they're blown there. They're blown here, they're blown there. There's no rootedness. Do you really believe, self, that the living God in his triune glory watches over those who walk in his way but the way the wicked will perish? Do, do you really believe? You see, when I, when I, when I get that and, and I think about that, man, I am motivated. I'm motivated to be here. I'm motivated to think and, and to cry out, Holy Spirit, take this word and make it part of my life. It's motivation. I was reading a few years ago, I'll put this in a file, but this is happened in 2012. There was a man named Andrew Brown who says he's a shy English toy company manager who set a record to be the first person to ever cross the Atlantic by rowing. Rowing. They said he's an athlete. Obviously, he's 26 years old. He's a young man. And so he, he decided to, 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 to hone his skills and, and row. And so he got on a rowing machine. You know, you... And he rowed for 25 hours straight. Why? You know, I'm, you're, you're a dinner party. Hey, what'd you do last week? Well, you know, I took a day off work and I rowed for 25 hours straight. Really? Yeah. Okay. Change the subject. You know, this, this is kind of, and, and then he rode across the Atlantic Ocean. It took him 40 days. And he lost 42 pounds. And he was really kind of a studly guy. You know, he's an athlete, so he didn't have weight. So he came and he said he, the last few days he, he was almost uh, given to delirious behavior because of no sleep. And he had all types of things running through his mind. He barely made it. But I'm going, you're at a dinner party. Once again, what did you do last year? Well, I rode across the Atlantic. Really? Why? 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 I understand sports. I love sports and there's some things, but why? Why? And, you know, he's, I'm sure he's a very fine man, but I, I just thought if, if he's motivated to row on a machine for 25 hours, if he's motivated to row across the Atlantic Ocean, for what purpose? How much more should I be motivated to really think through and make the Word of God part of my life? But because the Bible gives us hope and joy and purpose and peace as we understand the beauty of Jesus shining through his pages. So point four is really restatement point three. This is all, this is all exhortation. Just don't you. It is that... I want, I want to devote myself to the apostolic teaching because there's joy and purpose and usefulness or human flourishing as I study the Bible. Human flourishing. Listen, God loves re-words. Let me show you this. We have a theological paradigm, paradigm statement that goes like this. Creation, God made the heavens and the earth. God made man in his image. Fall, we fell into sin. We inherited a sin nature. In the fullness of time, God became a man and redeemed us by the work of of his son on the cross for our sin as our substitute. And then he's involved in restoration. 
He wants to restore us. He wants to bring us into his presence and make us continuously new people in Christ. God loves rewords. I quoted Calvin last week about we need to recoup what we've lost in the fall. Or we need to be recreated in the image of God or renewed in the image of God. There's a marriage ministry starting here called Re-Engage, Rewords. Grow your marriage, encourage in your marriage, be strong. God loves rewords. Because God is in the business of making us people who flourish under his hand. Micah 5 is a passage that I just love. It's an Old Testament prophecy regarding the Christ. And it says this. Starting in verse 2. But you, Bethlehem Ephrathah, you who are too tiny to be numbered among the clans of Judah. We don't even know where Bethlehem Ephrathah is. We think it's probably a real small, tiny village outside of Outside of Bethlehem. From you shall come forth for me, one who's to be the ruler in Israel. One who's going forth is from of old, from ancient of days. It's about the coming Messiah, King Jesus. Then it says this in verse 4 and 5. I love this. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great, even to the ends of the earth. And he will be their peace. And I just say, God, you've given us the reality of Christ and his word so that we might dwell secure. So that he might be our peace with you, with our fellow man, with myself. For now they shall dwell secure, for then he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he will be their peace. Now, I say, my birthright as a child of God is, is to have safety and, and to dwell secure and to have a sense of rightness and harmony and flourishing under the hand of God. And I do that as I devote myself to the apostles' doctrine, as I let the scriptures shape my life. Or I think of Psalm 86, where the psalmist says this. For you are great, and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord. Give me an undivided heart that I may fear your name. The psalmist says, Lord, Lord you, you are great, and you do wondrous things. You alone are God. You're glorious. You're good. You're kind. You're wonderful. You're God. Therefore, Great and glorious shepherding king, teach me your ways, O God. Give me an undivided heart that I might fear your name. So, so they devoted themselves to the apostolic doctrine because God is good. There's a little book by a guy named C.S. Lewis. It's called The Weight of Glory. It's just, just a compilation of a few sermons he preached in 1942. And the first sermon in the book is entitled, The Weight of Glory. Preached in Oxford in 1942. And Lewis says something like this. Let me give you the condensed version. He says that if you were to ask 10 Christian thinkers today, what is the chief characteristic of the Christian faith? Nine of them would say unselfishness. And he said, and they would be wrong. Because if you ask the great minds of the Christian church in the past, what's the chief calling of the Christian faith? They would say Love. 
And he says, and it always appeals to desire. We love God because he's good, and it goes well with us as we follow him. He says, we've taken a very positive teaching, which is, behold, the wonder of the living God and the fact that he is for us and he loves us, and we substitute it for a negative view. He says it has come in from Immanuel Kant or the Stoics. And he says this, when you consider the unblushing and staggering promises of the Gospels and the reward promised to those who go hard for Christ, We are like half-hearted creatures messing about with sex and drink and ambition. Like a child making mud pies in the slum when a free offer of a holiday or a vacation at sea has been offered to us. We're like kids making mud pies in the slum when you have a free offer of a holiday at sea offered to us. He says, behold the wonder of Christ. Behold the promise of God that says, I want human flourishing. I want joy and peace and purpose. I want my people to dwell secure. So so now I'm going to give you an application that's just a, 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 a huge application. The discipline that frees. Because God's way is best and because God is good, we are to have a brother, brotherly watchfulness over each other. Jesus said, if you know the, my, my people know my word and they live by it and they will know the truth and the truth will set you free. The age-old question is, from the book of Genesis, am I my brother's keeper? And the answer throughout the Bible is, yes, you are your brother's keeper. You, you are to walk with humility before each other. Jesus uses this incredible example he says in Matthew 7, he says, if, you're, if you see your brother has a, a speck in his eye, first get the two by four out of your eye, because we're all sinners, and then you can turn and help your brother get the speck out of his eye. He doesn't say forget it. He says, he says get, get your sin, deal with your sin, and then help your brother. Galatians 6 says that if a brother or sister is trapped in sin, that's what, sin stinks, is putrid, is horrid, it, it's, it's, it's decaying, is cancerous. If a brother or sister is trapped in sin, you who are spiritual, go and restore him gently. But watch yourselves, lest you too be tempted. In other words, you, you, nobody's above sin. Nobody here is above sin. Nobody here is a person who doesn't ever deal with sin. We all struggle. So the, the church historically has been called to exercise something called a, a watch care over church members, a, a, a holy concern for people. And let me just read the passage and talk with you through it. We've been dealing with this, this issue as, as an elder body. This used to be standard fare in the church, but somewhere around the 1910, 1920, it went off the radar, and I don't know why. This is what Jesus says. He's been talking about reclaiming the lost sheep. So if you find one out of 100, you put the sheep across your shoulders and you come back rejoicing. He says, we want to claim sheep. And he says this, he says, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother 
But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, as the Old Testament teaches. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him or let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Or you see him as a non-believer. So Hebrews chapter 13 says this. Regarding watching, giving and watch care over people. Hebrews 13 verse 17 Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So, so, so when you join a local church, and you should join a local church, you come under the watch care of the leadership of the church. And, and part of being in a local body of believers who love Christ and who love the Bible is we cry out, she cry out all the time, Lord, do not let us cause reproach to fall upon the name of Jesus by our living. Lord, do not let us, as Jesus says, don't lose your saltiness. Do not lose your saltiness. Be strong. So you walk with brothers and sisters who encourage you. So let me walk through this process and let me explain to you. The elders have been dealing with this for several months. And we're, we're trying to do this. We're doing it imperfectly because it's messy and it's difficult, but it's God-honoring. It's, it's, it's the discipline that frees. So step number one. If, if you think someone is involved in sin that hurts the body of Christ and causes the name of Christ to be reproached, if it's, if it's known and it's damaging to them, you go to them one-on-one, and you say to them, I'm a sinner, but I've seen this in your life, and I see where it's going to go, and it's going to be bad. And Jesus says, if they listen to you, go get a plate of nachos. That's a loose translation, but it's, it's time to celebrate. Your brother's been reclaimed, your sister's been reclaimed, but if they don't listen to you, Take one or two witnesses. Now, the way we structure things here, I'm going to suggest to you that the way we, is that would be an elder or a pastor. If it's a female-specific issue, then there can be a designee from the elder board who's a female. But you take one or two witnesses with you, and if they understand that it is sinful behavior, they say, listen, this is wrong. You shouldn't be doing this. This is against God's word. And if they listen, seriously, you've regained your, your brother. It's time to embrace him or her and to get help and to go forward together. But if they don't listen, then we will take it to the elder board. And a group of elders will give this individual who's a church member the opportunity to come before a small group of men and to answer any questions about why they are responding in such a fashion. And if those men say, that the accusation is true, it's against Scripture, they're going down the wrong road, they're going to destruction, they're, they're going to a place that's going to give them heartache and pain, and it grieves us. They bring it to the elder board. We will pray over that. It's a long process. And then we bring it to, to the church. And we say, and we're dealing with two men right now over some of these issues. And we'll say to the church, church, this person needs to be prayed for and loved. When you see them, encourage them, saying we're praying that you'll get back on path and do the right thing. 
And, and you pray and you fast and you weep and you long for their well-being. And if they still don't listen, Jesus says, you treat them as if you, they were a non-believer. Which means, in our understanding, we would say to you, please don't take the Lord's Supper when we have it on a month-by-month basis. Because the Bible says, if you take the Lord's Supper in an unworthy fashion, you drink damnation on your soul. You're dealing with God here. And we pray you'd repent and show that you truly are a follower of Jesus. And we love you. We want to befriend you. We want to walk with you. But this is wrong. And I am appealing to you as one sinner talking to another sinner under the banner of the grace of Jesus. That's what we have to do. That's who we are. And and, and as the culture continues, I think, as I observe, to slip more and more and more from foundational truth, this is going to be incredibly important for the church not to lose its witness. An example. If you are a a person and you're sleeping with somebody outside of marriage and and you go to almost any counselor who who are well-trained and who are bright and articulate, but they're captivated by the zeitgeist or the spirit of the age, not by the Bible. And you say to any counselor, you say, well, he says, how are you doing? You you say, well, I'm I'm not doing so good. Say, why? Well, I I feel bad because I'm sleeping with my boyfriend or my girlfriend and we're not married. And the guy says, "Why, why, why does that make you feel bad? I mean, well, we really believe it. We've progressed. We've evolved. And we see now that, that, that intimacy should be between two consenting adults. And if nobody's being hurt, it's no big deal. So maybe you should rethink. Maybe, you're, maybe it's your grandmama in your head that's just tormenting you. If you came to me, I'd say, you know, praise God you have guilt. Because it shows you may have the Holy Spirit. And it's not your grandmama. It's the living God who says, let the marriage bed be undefiled. So repent. Repent. Somebody writes some seditious material for the Aryan nation. They claim to be a believer in Jesus. A member of our church would go to him and say, listen, you can't say that, that one ethnic group is better than the other and one should serve the other and yada, yada, yada. You can't say that and be a follower of Jesus. I mean, it's just totally against the Bible. Repent. Somebody says, well... I'm leaving my spouse because they're not meeting my needs. I, I just, I've read the Bible frequently. I've never seen where the Bible says divorce if your spouse isn't meeting your needs. I just don't find it. Now, adultery, yes, it allows that. Or if a spouse leaves you and won't be reconciled, 1 Corinthians 7, I think it allows that. But we live in this, this age of no-fault divorces from the pit of hell. It smells like smoke and it stinks and it's destroying our culture. Just as an aside, I didn't tell, tell in the last hour. Daniel Moynihan, the incredibly articulate senator from New York, in 1965 released a report on the future of our country. And he said, the out-of-wedlock birth rate in the African-American community is 25%. And if that's not stopped, it will destroy that culture. Today it's 70%. And among... Hispanics is 50%. And among Anglos, it's gone from 5 to 25%. And where's the church? Where's the body of Christ saying, stop? And that's with Roe v. Wade and aborting millions of babies. It's amazing. So I said, I'm a nobody. I'm a nothing. I'm a dull-headed slope-headed Neanderthal. But I read the Bible. 
And I have no right to happiness without superintendency in my life. I thank God for people in my life who say, don't do that. Man, you should. I thank, thank God for a wife who says, you shouldn't have said it that way. I'm thankful 90% of the time for that. You know, there are times I wish you, oh, don't know, I know. I was, I, I'm, I'm thankful for that. I need brothers in my life because I deal with sin. And church, when we're silent, we have a, 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 we have a responsibility. So I, I, I'm going to use an example, and I, I, I'm kind of, maybe I shouldn't use this example, but I'm going to. In my lifetime, as I've observed the political process, there have been two, I think, politicians who were incredibly gifted in communication and the ability to get along with people and to move legislation down, down the path. Ronald Reagan and Bill Clinton. And they're very different, admittedly, but they're very gifted. Bill Clinton was elected in 1992. He beat a sitting president whose approval rate when the election started was at 72%. People said, this guy doesn't have a chance of beating George H.W. Bush, but he did because he was, he's incredibly gifted. He's a great communicator. He gets along with people. He'll go, he'll, he'll go to a McDonald's or Chipotle's or Moe's or Chick-fil-A or whatever, and he'll leave with five new best friends. He's a gifted guy. He's a wonderful communicator. Incredible story. Bill Clinton, for years and years, was a professing believer in Christ. I think he still may be. He was a member of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. And people who were from Little Rock told me that, that, that their television, their services were televised, and President Clinton would sit right there right behind the pulpit. So it's very, there's the governor of our state in the choir. Yeah, it may have been something the church did to attract people or whatever, but he was there. We ask our choir to exit if you're in this room so that you won't be looking at them thinking how good looking they are and you can concentrate on me and feel bad for me. So Emmanuel Baptist Church, I'm well-known Church, they believe the Bible. Bill Clinton said the pastor is one of my heroes for years and years, an older man. But it became very clear during his governorship through countless witnesses, not just one or two, but countless, that President Clinton was not a man who followed the biblical mandate for sexuality. And to my knowledge, not once did his church pull him beside behind closed doors with the pastors or the deacons and say, Governor Clinton, we love and respect you, but you cannot live this way and name the name of Jesus. You just can't. And if you continue this way, we're, gonna, we're praying for you, but we're going to have to say publicly that, that, that you violated your standing. We love you. We've got the log out of our eye. We've got logs. They never did that. And I thought if I could get in a time machine and go back to 1985, 86, 87, 88, and you'd done that with this man who claimed to be a follower of Christ and who claimed to have a deeper love for the pastor, would he have changed? And if he had, we would never have heard the name Monica Lewinsky. 
And we've never been drugged through the, the morass and the filth of that whole situation that has unleashed, I think, incredible destruction on our culture. And, and I fought the church for not having the biblical love and courage to speak truth. That's, see, if we want to devote ourselves to the apostles' doctrine, we will do so. That's just it. This is the Bible. It's clear here. See, this is who we are. And I need people in my life who say to me, look, walk, walk this way. Well, let's pray. Lord, thank you for this day. Uh, thank, you, thank you that the early church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. And they walked in it, and they, they loved it, and, and they, they dealt with issues. And it's hard, and it's messy, and it was tough, but it was life-giving, it was freeing, it caused singing, it caused rejoicing, it caused laughter. Lord, I pray that we would have a deep conviction that blessed is the man who does not walk tethered to the spirit of the age. Blessed is the man who's rooted in the word. And that man or that woman will be like a tree planted by streams of water whose, whose leaf never withers and they produce their fruit and you bless them. So, so, so thank you for that. And I, I just think of the people we know and love who are untethered to the reality of Christ. And it's just, it's just a, it's a hard place to live because you're up one day, you're down the next, you're blown south, you're blown north, you're blown east, you're blown west, you're... God, we don't want to be that way. We, we want to be anchored with love and grace and dignity and purpose to those around us. And use us, Lord, to speak Christ to our contemporaries this week. And help us to always get the log out of our eye before we help people get the speck out of their eye. Forgive me for being arrogant. Forgive me for being proud. Forgive me for holding people to a higher standard than I hold myself to, Lord. Forgive me for that. So let's love the truth in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.